Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning, Garden. It is good to be with you. It's fun to um, actually get to hang out with you on a Sunday. I don't often get to come and check out other churches because I got a gig to do on Sunday mornings. And this is going to fall apart. So I'm going to steal one from the musicians. Don't tell them. And sorry for whoever's iPad this is. Now, um, I have gotten to know Darren over the last several years and just have a real affection for him. Is there any prettier preacher in Long Beach than Darren Roundsen? I don't think that there is. And so we have just all learned to suck it up and decide like we will never be as pretty as Darren. Um, Now, we feel a real affection and connection to the garden and love what's happening here, love the stories that we hear. And even our churches are connected beyond just Darren and my friendship, beyond also being in the same city and church of the city, but we actually have some common roots. Your church, the garden, began in the basement of a church called Long Beach First Christian. I know some of you were a part of that. Well, my church, Parkcrest, is also a church plant. It just happens to be a 62-year-old church plant. And 62 years ago, Long Beach First Christian had a vision for starting a new church on the east side of Long Beach and sent out a group of men and women from that church to go over and start this new work of the kingdom over on the east side of Long Beach. And so we have this common heritage where we both started out of this same place. And at my church, we're a multi-generational church, and so we have people in all ages, and I have to communicate uh, in a room where I've got high school students and, and people in their 80s, octogenarians, and I've had to learn to try and communicate that way, and I screw things up a lot. And I was remembering there's this Sunday Sunday where I was talking to a couple before church and they're in their late 50s and I had grown my beard out and it had gotten pretty big and it was pretty shaggy to the point where people were asking me if I was trying to like look homeless on purpose. It was getting, it was getting pretty, pretty big and pretty bad and so people were constantly talking to me about it and I was talking with this couple in their late 50s and they're asking me about my beard and I wanted to communicate to them. They're like, how's it been having this beard? Is it hot? Is it itchy? And all the questions that you get, those of you guys that have like beards, like people like to talk about your beards. And so, so they're asking me that stuff. And I said, yeah, you know, the one thing that I didn't expect was all the manscaping that would be involved in, in having a beard. And the woman, her face just goes white and her eyes get real big. And she leans in so that nobody else can hear. And she says quietly to me, she says, Mike, I don't think that word means what you think that it means. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed and I walked away and I got on my phone and I Googled manscaping. <laughs> And I was like, oh goodness, I just told this 58-year-old woman in my church that I manscape, and that is dirty and wrong. (laughs) That phrase, though, is stuck with me. I don't think that word means what you think that it means. And you have all been journeying through the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, and Darren's asked me to kind of continue on with that. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 4. And what John is doing in this letter, one of the things that he's doing in this letter is he's leaning in really close and he's saying, when you say God, 
I don't think that that means what you think that it means because I think we're talking past each other. When you say truth, I don't think that word means what you think that it means because I think we're actually talking past each other. And what we're going to look at today is him clearing that up a bit. And so 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. They're from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, a fascinating thing is going on as John writes this letter. There are obviously teachings that have begun to infiltrate this church that are wrong. They're taking them off track. And what John is saying to them is he's saying with these teachings, I don't think that it means what you think that it means. They're destructive to the church, but they're not just destructive to the church. They're destructive to you and to your life and to the way that you live. In fact, the word that John uses for truth is a Greek word, and he uses it often in his writings, and you find it in several places here in 1 John. It's the word aletheia. And aletheia in the ancient world was a used it was a word that was used to say that something is not concealed. It's unconcealed. It's to say that something is aletheia was to say that that thing described reality. Aletheia would put on display the way that things really are. Because what happens is that we end up covering things up. We create false realities that we put on display. We will try to make things seem better than they really are or different than what they actually are to somehow maybe get people to perceive something different or to get them to do something that we want them to do or to even believe something about ourselves that isn't fully true but that we wish was true. And when you aletheia, what you do is you strip all of that away and you see the reality of the way things actually are. And so as John spends all this energy in this letter talking about discovering, holding on to what is true. He's not talking about just doing some intellectual exercise. He's not talking about just having these intellectual arguments about what's true and what's not. He's not talking about debates about concepts of truth. He's not talking about arguing some sort of talking points. He's talking about an encounter that reveals the way things really are. And that's why he would open up his letter in the first chapter talking about the things that we have seen and heard and touched ourselves, this encounter that would show them aletheia, this encounter that would reveal to them the way things really are, the way things really are in the world, the way things really are in our lives, and the way things really are about God. And what's interesting about this is the question that John is wrestling with here. What is true? Is a question that the church has struggled with for the past two millennia. How do we quantify what is true? How are you able to discern and to tell what is true and what is not? 
And so in the early centuries of the movement of the followers of Jesus, they would hold these major theological conferences. They called them councils where they would get together some of the best theological minds of the day and they would debate over uh, significant theology. They would debate over understandings of God and understandings of Jesus. They would debate over what does it mean to have an orthodox faith. And out of these conferences, out of these councils, came many of the things that we consider foundational theological truths today. The, these creedal statements would get produced out of them. Things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, basic foundational statements that create this sort of broad tent for what's considered faithful teaching about God and truthful teaching about God. And the, These creeds are why somebody who could be from a charismatic church could say about somebody who's from like a reformed church could say, they are my brother, they are my sister in Christ because we may have some differences about how we understand some things and we may have these different streams of Christianity that we are, find ourselves flowing in but when you boil it all down the, that we would all be able to say these creeds and we would say, so we're brothers and sisters in Christ and so in the fourth, fifth centuries around that time, the creed became a way to be able to tell well, what's true and what's not. And then as the years progressed, what began to happen was the printing press is invented. 1500s, Gutenberg's printing press with movable type makes for the very first time the availability of the mass production of books. And particularly, the most significant thing that was being mass produced at that time was Bibles, first thing off the press. And what happens when Bibles are being mass produced at the same time as they're being translated into ordinary language? And so before that, Bibles are in the hands of the elite and just a small percentage of people have them. After the invention of the printing press, suddenly the Bible gets in the hands of ordinary people and they begin to read it for themselves and people begin to realize that some of the things that they had been taught, that they actually weren't correct, that some of the things that they had been taught by the elite who were the only ones who had the Bible were actually anti-biblical. Things like indulgences where essentially you paid into the church's building fund in order to receive forgiveness of sins which seems like a, like a really easy way to maybe make money or to like when you're trying to do that next building campaign, maybe that will work. Well, that's what they were doing and they realized, no, no, what the scriptures actually teach is the free forgiveness of sins as the gift of grace from God. And so while there's disagreements on how to interpret different portions of the Bible, once the Bible got in the hands of ordinary people, and particularly once the New Testament got in the hands of ordinary people, there were things that they realized they are clearly and completely against what the Scriptures taught. And so the Scriptures then, the New Testament, became a way to tell what is true and what's not. But as John's writing this letter, there have been no theological conferences, there have been no councils, there are no creedal statements that have been formed. As John's writing this letter, there is no New Testament yet for him to turn to because he's writing a portion of it. He's actually concerned with something that's deeper than those things that actually transcends each of those things. What actually reveals the way things really are? In a culture for them where most people didn't read, in a culture where there were competing viewpoints as to what is true and what's right, in a place where there were competing ideas of what God is like, in a, in a culture that lived in the tension of an openness to new ideas and yet at the same time a skepticism towards anything that actually pushed against what they already believed, into that kind of culture and into that kind of place, what is Aletheia? What reveals the way things really are? And here's the argument that John 
John makes. He says, Jesus has come in the flesh. The theological term for that is we call it the incarnation, that Jesus in flesh and blood would come and would live amongst us, and he himself reveals the way things really are. And what has begun to happen in the church as John is writing this is false teachings have begun to enter in. John says it's coming from what he calls false prophets and from the spirit of falsehood. And at the essence of their message is that Jesus has not truly come in the flesh. And this actually makes sense. It makes sense that this is what people would be teaching at that time. It makes sense that people would buy into it at that time. Because in the first century Greco-Roman world, it was highly influenced by Plato and by Plato's teachings, by Platonic thinking. And Plato's teachings, one of the things that he said is that we live in a dualistic world, a dualistic world saying that there's a separation between two competing forces. There's the spirit world, and the spirit world is good, and it is inherently good. And then there's the material world, the physical world, the things that you can see, touch, taste, smell, that you can actually like be around, and that is inherently evil. Spirit is good, matter is bad. And in that kind of world, Worldview, it was such a problem that God would come and take on flesh and blood. That creates an issue because spirit is coming and coming into the material. Spirit is inherently good, material is inherently evil. You can't have spirit here. It was such a problem for their worldview that they began to devise theories to try and make sense of it. They said things like this Well, Jesus wasn't actually a person. He only appeared to be a person. He he existed as a sort of spiritual being, but he had a facade of a body. And so he couldn't take a body actually on because if he did that, it would be detrimental to his God nature because it's inherently evil and he would be taking evil upon himself. And so his body, his human nature was actually an illusion. It was aroused by God to like make him look like a man, but he wasn't actually a man. And so here's what was happening. What was happening is that they had already established a worldview. They already had a way that they worked at the wor- uh, looked at the world, a way that they said, this is how the world works. This is how things function. There's two things. There's spirit and there's material. Spirit is good. Material is bad. Those two things, that's how things work. That's the way that they viewed the world. And then they recognized something significant has happened in Jesus. And so what they did is they said, here's our worldview. How do we take Jesus and how do we make him fit into the way that we already view the world? And John says that to do that is so egregious that anyone who teaches this, anyone who believes this, he says, is antichrist. In fact, he talks about it also a few chapters earlier in chapter two. According to John, who, by the way, also wrote the book of Revelation, according to John, the antichrist is not some singular person in the future. The antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. It's someone who, rather than letting Jesus create new definitions of who God is and Jesus defining for us what God is like, it's someone who takes their understanding of God, somebody who takes their worldview and they try to impose it on to Jesus. They are antichrist, he says, because they are literally against Christ. They don't allow him to be aletheia, They don't allow him to reveal the way things actually are. What they do instead is they try to fit him into the way that they already think things are. And the thing that's so 
wrong is that it's, that John says that it's from the spirit of falsehood and from the spirit of, the, of Antichrist to not allow Jesus to be Jesus. To not allow Jesus and the fullness of who he is, the complete flesh and blood Jesus, the way that he lived and the things that he did and what he taught, to not allow that to define for them what God is actually like and to shape their worldview and to actually even tear apart and rip apart the things that they already thought and believed about the way the world should work. Scott McKnight, who's been called one of the preeminent New Testament scholars in the United States, he would teach a, a class, an intro to Jesus class, at the, the college that he taught at, the university he was at. And in that class, on the first day, he would give the students a questionnaire, and it asked them questions about themselves, what their personality was like, what they liked to do, what they were passionate about, what they were into, and they would, they would take some time and they'd fill out these questions. Then a little bit later, he would give them a second questionnaire, This questionnaire was about how they understood Jesus and what they believed about Jesus. What he didn't tell them was that the questions were essentially the same as the first questionnaire they took, just slightly altered to be about Jesus and to not make it obvious. They would fill that out, what they thought and believed about Jesus coming into the class. And here's what Dr. McKnight discovered, is that the answers given for what students believed Jesus was like almost always lined up with and were almost always identical to the way that students saw themselves. So if you're an introvert, Jesus is an introvert because he often withdrew to lonely places to pray. But if you're an extrovert, Jesus is the like king of extroverts. He is like the life of the party. He is always with people. He's always working the room. If you are somebody who leans towards being more compassionate and empathetic, then that's what you gravitate towards in Jesus. And you see him as those being dominant characteristics in Jesus, that he's compassionate and empathetic. If you're somebody who's naturally passionate and zealous about things, and that's what you see in Jesus, that's dominant in him. And what McKnight found was that these students who are at a Christian college taking collegiate level scholarly courses on Jesus, they had a tendency to make Jesus look exactly like themselves. He liked what they liked. He was passionate what they were passionate about. He had personality temperaments that were the same as theirs. He had similar politics that they did. It's like what Voltaire once famously said, that God created mankind in his image, and then we returned the favor. Or Anne Lamont, who once said that you know you have sufficiently made God into your own image when he hates all the same people that you hate. (laughs) Because here's what our tendency is to do. Our tendency is to take our worldview, to take the way that we've already been enculturated, the things that we already think about the way the world works and how things function and what is good and bad and right and wrong and what should be done in different situations and how much practicality should win out and how much, like all of those things, the way that we view the world, the thoughts, values, ideas we already have and what our tendency to do is then to take Jesus and to try to fit Jesus into that, to try to make Jesus make sense through the lens of what we already think of how the world functions. It's actually why when we go to a church, we actually don't want a pastor to challenge us. I've been in professional ministry for almost 19 years now, and what I have discovered is that people will often say they want to be challenged by a pastor, but they actually don't want to be challenged by a pastor. They actually don't want to have a pastor talk about God in ways that are fresh to them or that push against what they already believe. What most people want to do is most people want to go to a church that simply says what they already 
already believe. Then they can walk out, and if the pastor has simply reiterated what they already believe, they can walk out and they can shake the pastor's hand. They can say, that was a great message. And then they can leave them. They can go tell their friends, well, that pastor really preaches the truth. And what I have learned over the years is that when I hear somebody say, that pastor really preaches the truth, I have learned that is code language. That is code language for the pastor stood up there and he said things that I already agree with. And John is writing and he's saying there's this group of people who already have this worldview established. They already have a way that they think things are. They say that the world exists in this dualism where spirit is good and matter is bad. And then Jesus shows up and rather than Jesus completely reframing their worldview, rather than Jesus completely tearing apart the way that they view the world, rather than him completely changing how they understand God, what they do instead is they try to make Jesus fit into what they already think and believe. And so they say, well, he must not have come in the flesh because that wouldn't make any sense for how the world works and for what we think God is like. And what John is saying is truth. To say somebody is teaching the truth, to say a pastor really preaches the truth, what that means is that they allow the reality of Jesus and all that he is to stand on its own and to frame the way that we view the world and to frame the way that we view God. It means that they've allowed Jesus to shatter any kind of preconception that they have of anything and that he becomes a starting point for all of our understanding, for the way that we understand the world, the way that we understand our life, the way that we understand that we're to engage in the world, the way that we understand God and what God is like. He reveals the way things really are because Jesus is Aletheia. And when you experience Aletheia, it's not because somebody says something that you already agree with. It's because somebody has allowed the mind-blowing reality that God would come and take on flesh and blood, that he would come as an infant and he would grow and he would actually learn and he would walk on earth, not just as God, not just as human, but as fully God and fully human. And to own that is to shift our perspective in order to make Jesus the starting point for how we view God. And when we change our perspective, it changes the way that we understand things. It's like this morning, if you were up early and you walked outside, you would have seen the sun up in the sky and you would have maybe said, the sun is rising. And then later this evening, if you're to go down to the beach and you're to sit there at the beach and you're to watch the sun over the horizon, you would say, well, the sun is setting. We talk as if the sun is actually moving. The sun is rising and the sun is setting. And from where we stand, from our vantage point, it appears like that, doesn't it? In fact, that's what people thought in the world for years and years and years and centuries and millennia is that the sun was constantly moving. But we actually discovered scientifically that's not the case, is it? The sun isn't moving. We are. It appears to us as if the sun is moving, but it's not. And so our perspective shifts and changes. The sun hasn't changed, but our perspective of it has, and so we understand it differently. And this is what Jesus does for our understanding of God, life, and the world, is that God doesn't change, but our perspective of him does. When we look through the lens of Jesus rather than through the lens of our worldview, we begin to understand him and see him differently. In fact, let me just show you really quick how this plays itself out a few places in the New Testament because the New Testament authors spend a lot of energy trying to make this point that Jesus becomes the lens through which we view and understand God. Paul would write this in Colossians 1. 
It says that the sun is the image of the invisible God. And so the question is, well, what does God look like? Well, he's invisible, right? We can't see God. We can't fully comprehend him. He's intangible to us. He's incomprehensible to us. But Paul says, but the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He shows us what God's like. He makes God tangible to us. He makes the invisible God visible. Sometimes, though, what we do is when we look at Jesus, and especially if you've been around the church for a while, you do this, is that we look at Jesus and we say, well, he is a partial image of God. That God has other characteristics that are true of him, but they're not seen in Jesus. They're not displayed in Jesus. And so Jesus shows us, Jesus is fully God, but he only shows us a part of who God is. There are parts of God and his character that are not shown to us and revealed to us in Jesus. But then look at what Paul says. It's just a few sentences later in Colossians 1.19 that he says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And so how much of God dwells in Jesus? It's not a trick question. All of it. You don't even need to know the Greek to know that. All of it. All of the fullness of God. There is not a part of God that is not in Jesus. There is nothing that is true of God that is not also true of Jesus. We cannot say, well, there are characteristics of God that aren't found in Jesus. It is not the case. In fact, the author of Hebrews would say that Jesus is the exact representation of God. There is nothing that is true of God that is not also true of Jesus. God always looks like Jesus. And sometimes we try to flip that around and we establish a view that we have of God and we say, Jesus always looks like God. And what the New Testament teaches is, no, 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 Start with Jesus. God always looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. Jesus would even say as much about himself. At one point, he says that anyone who has seen the Father has seen me. Jesus says that if you look at me and you see what I'm like and you see what I care about and you see the way that I live and you see my character and you see how I treat people and you see what I'm passionate about and you see what I do and you see why I do it and you hear what I teach when you see all of those things, you have seen the Father because anyone who has seen me has seen the Father because Jesus is Aletheia. He reveals the way things really are. God always looks like Jesus. And so there comes this point in time in the history of the world where people have a view of what God is like and then Jesus shows up and our perspective entirely shifts. It's like the sun hasn't changed what it's doing, but our perspective of it has changed. And so now we understand it more fully. Now we look at this thing with new knowledge and we understand it completely differently which means this, it means that Christian theology always moves from Jesus to God and not from what we think we know about God to Jesus. And this is how you experience aletheia. This is how the way things really are is revealed. And this, this is the scandal of Christianity. Because Jesus is God is the most fundamental truth of the Bible. Anything that I believe that makes Jesus out not to be the exact representation of God's character must be condemned as sub-biblical. And anyone who tries to make Jesus fit into their own preconceived notions of the way that the world works is called antichrist. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite authors, would say it this way. He'd say, all of our prevailing images and understandings of God must crumble in the earthquake of Jesus' self-disclosure. If we do not allow Jesus to change our image of God, then we cannot profess him as Lord. 
Jesus changes our image of God. In fact, this idea was so incredibly radical and so incredibly significant that this is a part of the reason that Jesus would be killed, Paul would be beaten and thrown into prison, John, who writes this letter, would be exiled onto the island of Patmos because they were redefining God around Jesus. And by the way, some of them were redefining an Old Testament view that people had of what God was like, and they're saying, no, no, he's actually like this, and you've gotta make Jesus the starting point. That will get you killed in religious circles, apparently. It will get you exiled in religious circles. It will get you beaten and mocked and thrown into prison in religious circles to say we don't start with our own idea of God wherever it comes from. We only start with Jesus to give us the viewpoint of what God is like because he is Aletheia. Now, this has all kinds of implications all kinds of significant implications, and we could stay here for the next seven or eight hours talking about them, and I know that you have nothing else to do, but I wanna talk about one of the implications. I wanna talk about one of the things that this means for us, and one of the things that it means for the way that we view God. Now, I grew up in the church, and in the church, this is the story that I was told of of what the story of the scriptures was at their essence, And and it was this, that God, God, created human beings in his image for relationship with him. But the problem was that human beings rebelled against God. We turned our back on God. We said, we can do things our own way. We don't need you. I can be independent. And when we turned our backs on God, we sinned against him. And that because God is holy, his holiness cannot come into contact with sin. His holiness is actually re- rebel, it has to rebel against sin and reject the sin and has to get as far away from it as possible. And so our sin caused God to turn away from us. And that what Jesus does is that Jesus shows up and he lives a life and he dies on a cross and his death on the cross then makes it possible so that God can then turn back towards us so that hopefully eventually we might then turn back towards him. I don't know if that's the story of the scriptures that you have heard, but it's the story that I have heard and I have come to realize that that's actually not the story of the scriptures. I've come to realize, in fact, not only is it not the story of the scriptures, if you make Jesus your starting point for how you understand God, for how you understand life, for how you understand the scriptures, that it can't be the story of God. I mean, let's just say, for instance, how does Jesus treat sinners? Does he ever turn his back on them? Does Jesus, as a result of his holiness, ever have to be repelled away from someone in sin? Does he ever have to get as far away from them as possible? It's not the case. Instead, there's this woman, Samaritan woman, and she's been trying to fill her life through relationship after relationship after relationship, and it just creates this void that is empty. It is not working. So much so that she goes through marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage, married and divorced five times, and now she's just completely given up on the idea of marriage, and so she's living with a man. She is ostracized in her community, and Jesus comes to her, and he looks at her, and he sees her at a well, And he says to this woman, he says, I know that you are thirsty. I know that even though you keep drawing water from the well, that it hasn't satisfied your soul. And so he says, I have the water of life that can set you free. And this woman believes. 
And she goes into town and she tells everyone, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? There's this man who's well off and he's trusted in his wealth and in his riches. He's rich and he's powerful. He's got a position of power and influence because he's chosen to collude with the occupying forces of Rome. Even though he's Jewish, he's chosen to align himself with the Roman forces. He's a tax collector, and not just any tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. And so he's been ostracized by his people. He has money, he has power, but he is short on friends. And Jesus comes walking down the road, and he looks up into a tree, and he sees Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I must eat at your house today. Zacchaeus comes down and Jesus goes to the home of this very wicked sinner and he dines with him. And Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus says, if anyone, if anyone um, is poor, I'm gonna give half of my possessions to them. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay them back multiple times over. And Jesus looks at him. God looks at him and says, today salvation has come to this man's house because he too is a son of Abraham. There's this woman who's been caught in adultery. The Pharisees are glad to catch somebody in this act, and so they bring this woman into the presence of Jesus because they want to test him. And they say this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And what the Bible says, what Moses tells us to do, is that we should stone such women. What do you say? And at first, Jesus doesn't say a thing. In fact, all he does is he kneels down and he writes in the dust. And for thousands of years, people have wondered, what did he write in the dust? But that's actually the whole point. You'll never know what he wrote because it's just there in the dust for a moment and then it's gone. Jesus never left us any written record because Jesus is the word. His life is the word. Jesus is what God had to say. And so what did God say? Jesus turned to those people who were accusing her, holding stones, ready to kill this woman and do what the Bible told them to do. And he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And slowly they dropped their stones and they left. And Jesus says to this woman, he looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Does anyone condemn you? No one, sir well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There is this Gentile, this Gentile who's been so plagued by darkness that he has a legion of demons living in him. Not just one, two, or three demons, a whole legion of demons. And so he's regressed into this animal-like state. He no longer wears clothes, and he just cries out into the, into the air day and night. Nobody dares come near him. Everyone is afraid of him. They've given up on him. They've decided he is a lost cause. But then Jesus gets on a boat to sail across the Sea of Galilee, to see this man and he comes to this man and he says I am not afraid of you in fact I am calling the demons out of you and I am telling them get out of him and I speak life into you and so now this man is transformed and he's in his right mind and people come and they see him and he's fully clothed sitting at the feet of Jesus 
Does Jesus ever look at a person and say, that person is so sinful, I can't have anything to do with them. I've got to get as far away from them as possible. My holiness cannot allow me to come into contact with them because they are too sinful. Does he ever do that? No, no. Do you ever see him doing anything like that in the Gospels? You don't. You know who you actually do see doing things like that in the Gospels, by the way? The Pharisees. Could it be that sometimes our picture of God is actually we make God more like the Pharisees than we make God like Jesus? There's a reason. There's a reason that this God has been called the hound of heaven because every time you turn your back on him, he pursues you. And every time you turn your back on him, he doesn't turn his back on you, he pursues you. And you're like, but you don't know what I have done. You don't know the things that I have put my family through and how they have hurt them. And he doesn't turn his back on you, he pursues you. And you're like, but you don't know the addiction that I'm living with right now and the way that it is destroying my life. And in that that place, he pursues you. Like, you don't know, I used to be a solid follower of Jesus and I have walked away from him. I want nothing to do with the church and I'm as far away from him as possible. And in that place, he doesn't turn his back on you. He pursues you. And you're like, I'm living with so much shame and guilt from the decisions and choices that I made that it just plagues me that I feel like I am not worth anything. And what he does is he pursues you. Every time, he pursues you. Every time, he pursues you. Every time he pursues you, there is nothing that you can do. There is no way that you can turn your back on him that would cause him to turn his back on you. He pursues you, and he pursues you, and he pursues you. Because God always looks like Jesus. He frames, Jesus frames for us what God is like. He is Aletheia. Do you want to know the way things really are? Do you want to know what God is actually like? We look to Jesus and we allow him to frame for us our view of the world. We allow him to frame for us what God is like. We allow him to frame for us how God interacts with us and how God views us. And this God, this Jesus, doesn't turn his back on you. He pursues you and pursues you and pursues you. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.